Good to see you all. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're turning to Galatians chapter 5, and there we are told not only has Jesus Christ died in our place, which brings us salvation, but now the Holy Spirit, we are told, takes up residence in our lives and empowers us to live the life we're supposed to live, which is amazing. Look at chapter 5, verse 16. The Apostle Paul says, So I say, Live by the Spirit or walk in the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. Do you want to know how to avoid the desires of the sinful nature? Walk in the Spirit. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other so that you do not do what you want. So these two are in conflict. There's a battle going on in your life as we have seen. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. That is, you're not under the system of the law condemning you and you're being drawn to violate the law, which is what happens when you live under the law instead of under grace. And then here are the acts of the sinful nature. You know what they are. They're obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, uh, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, orgies, and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. So there's one side of the conflict, darkness. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. Give me more of that stuff. Look at verses 22 and 23. Give me that. That's what I want. That's a life of light. 24. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the sinful nature with its passions and desires. So we've, if, when we belong to Christ, we've killed that other stuff. Verse 25. Since we live by the Spirit, that is, since we walk by the Spirit, let us keep in step or keep in line with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking and envying each other. We've been looking at the life of the Spirit. We looked at the life of love. We looked at the life last week of joy. Let's talk today about peace. And this is very important. You know what it's like not to have peace. You didn't get the job. Or you didn't get the promotion. Or you asked her to marry you and she said... Can I have some time to think about it? <laughs> or, or your wife said, you know, you're just really not doing so hot as a husband. Or one of your children tells you that they're getting a divorce. Uh, or you go to your doctor and he, he says, I got some bad news. Uh, you know what it's like to have turmoil in your life. And what the Bible tells us is that when we live by the Spirit, We are, as David says, I'm a man of peace. That's ironic, isn't it? Considering all the fighting and turmoil David had in his life. He said, I'm a man of peace. But we can be men of peace amidst unbelievable turmoil in our circumstances. Now let's look at how this works. We see in verse 22 that peace comes from the Spirit of God. Peace doesn't come from your circumstances. Peace doesn't come from your surroundings. Peace doesn't come from the inside of your body. Peace comes from God. This is the big secret to the contentment that we just sang about. Be still my soul. 
And you can tell your soul to be at peace because you have access to a peace that comes from another place. Now, Webster defines peace as a state of tranquility or quiet. So it's tranquility or inner peace is the way normally it would be described uh, by the dictionary. Or a freedom from evil disturbance. That is a lack of conflict, lack of turmoil. So it's tranquility on the inside and circumstances uh, uh, peaceful on the outside. Uh, but we're going to see the Bible approaches this a little bit differently. It, it includes that, but it's more than that. The word shalom is the word for peace, salem in Arabic. And shalom you'll find over 250 times in your Old Testament. And it means well-being, prosperity, health, fulfillment, completion. It's a sense of wholeness. Everything's going dandy. That's shalom. And so when you say shalom to someone, you mean all these things, the prosperity and well-being, the gifts of God, everything to be upon you. In the New Testament, the word erene, uh, is from which we get the word irenic, uh, also translates the word shalom in the Old Testament. But in the New Testament, you'll find erene 92 times. So obviously, this is over 350, uh, about 350 times. This is a big word in the Bible. It's important. Obviously, it's important. Now, what brings us peace? Now, let's look at these things I've listed here for us that seem to me to be the components of peace, protection from harm. We're not afraid that we're going to be attacked. We've got security on our walls. Our coasts are secure. We feel at peace. And whenever our coasts have not been secure, we don't feel at peace at all. You know what that feels like. Provisions for life. We know where our food is coming from today and maybe tomorrow morning for breakfast. <laughs> and that brings us peace. Our provisions for the life of our family. We have peace. When we know the bills are going to be paid, we're not going to be picked, kicked out of our house because we can't pay the rent. We have peace. Inner peace, peace often comes from being loved, and this love includes three components. This is what a lot of psychologists would tell us, that we have a sense of being accepted by other people, especially the most important people in our lives. We have a sense of being included. You know what it's like to be excluded. But to be included, that is your opinion, is important. Your presence is important. We're not going somewhere without you. You're, you're important in this group. And then that you're valuable. And the way people treat you has to do with whether you sense that they value you and whether you then value yourself. So our peace or inner contentment or the rest of our inner selves has to do with this experience of being loved that is accepted, included, and valued. And then having a purpose for life is a key component for the sensation or the experience of peace. Now, what can kill our peace? Well, anytime you interrupt or remove any of those things. So your peace is threatened anytime one of those things is threatened. And you just think about it for a moment. When you've been all wired up and lost your peace and lost your sense of well-being, something was happening in one of those areas. So peace comes from the Spirit of God. He gives us peace. And so if He's going to give us peace, somehow those things need to be addressed. Somehow God's going to have to address those things because He made us to know peace when those things are in place. So therefore, God, if He's going to give us peace, is going to have to give us those things, isn't He? Or, we're, or some sort of a fantasy that we're living out. Now what we see is that 
God alone gives peace. And I want you to leave your finger in Galatians 5 and turn over to John 14 for a moment. And Jesus had his disciples a, uh, a bit rattled because he said, I'm, I'm going to be leaving you. Well, that's, there you go. Now I'm not included anymore. I'm not even sure I'm valued anymore. You're going somewhere without me. So I must not be important. And they felt abandoned and they were losing their peace. And Jesus said to them while they were in the upper room, he says, uh, uh, all this I have, this is verse 25, all this I have spoken while still with you, but the Counselor, the Holy Spirit, there's the Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said. Now look at this. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. He's saying, my peace I give to you. And I don't give to you as the world gives. Now, how does the world give? It gives partial peace. It gives uh, superficial peace. It gives temporary peace. Jesus says, I give you permanent peace. I give you full peace. I give you my peace. And there's a big difference between these two for all those reasons. So what Jesus is saying is that the peace that we're all longing for comes from God and it does not come from the world. The world cannot settle your soul. Only your Creator can settle your soul. And if your soul settles it, uh, if your Creator settles it, nothing can unsettle it. And so you want to anchor your peace, your contentment, the rest of your inner being in God alone and not in this world which is so transient, so temporary, so superficial. And how is it that we try to find peace for ourselves apart from God? How is it that men try to do that? Well, there are a bunch of ways. I've thought of a few of them here. We look for acceptance through performance. I want to be accepted by you, so I'll be a high performer. And often that comes from, from guys whose parents valued them because of their performance, because they got straight A's or they were always on the first team on the baseball team or because they had a nice batting average or whatever it was. And you learn that you gain acceptance through your performance and you're seeking peace through getting acceptance through your performance. Or some seek popularity through conformity. I want to be popular. I want to be included. And so I'll do what you do, whatever it is. I don't care what you do. I'll just do what you do because I want to be included in your group. And it's amazing to me. You can have a 60-year-old who's still trying to gain popularity. You think, has the guy not grown up yet? He's acting like a kid. He's conforming to all these other teenagers so that he'll be included in the group. It's amazing to me. It goes on and on and on. Uh, people who are so starving for peace that comes through acceptance and popularity. Or some will look th for happiness through anesthesia. <laughs> Give me some more of those drugs. Give me some more of that alcohol. Just let me numb it down just a little bit. Let me get a little Novocaine for my brain. And that way I can just desensitize myself so that I'd, I'm not rattled by all the turmoil around me. So anesthesia is a popular way to go. Or sometimes people look for purpose through selfishness. I'm going to have a purpose in life, okay? I'm going to have the biggest estate among any of my friends. I'm going to have more degrees than anybody in my family ever had. I'm going to do this, that, and the other. It's all self. It's all about me. And that's my purpose in life. And so I get some sense of purpose that gives me some sense of peace 
by just simply simply serving myself. Or some people will seek self-esteem, that is to value themselves, through their own pride. And they just keep telling themselves how great they are. They keep running other people down. They keep vaunting themselves and boasting about their accomplishments. It's just simply seeking self-esteem through pride. And some will seek to protect themselves, to secure their borders through violence, through taking other people's lives or taking other people's property. They will defend themselves and try to protect themselves. And some seek provision for themselves and their family through dishonesty and corruption. There are all kinds of ways in which we go about seeking peace. That's what we're seeking through the world's means and through the world's ends. And it ultimately leads to total destruction and darkness. It doesn't get us anywhere. Peace comes only from the Spirit of God. And if we're going to have peace, we need to learn how to go to Him to get it. That's the reason that Jesus Christ in Isaiah 9 is called the Prince of Peace. He's the King of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. He's the Giver of Peace. And that's the reason that when He was born in Bethlehem, the angels sang, Glory to God in the highest. Peace on earth. Goodwill to men. Peace on earth when Jesus Christ was born. He's the secret. He's the mystery. He's the key that unlocks the life of peace that we would so much want. You find this in in a very popular hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And you remember what happened there? Uh, uh, This man, Horatio Spofford, had his wife and daughters take a trip across the Atlantic and the ship sank. And Horatio Spofford himself went over uh, on another ship called the Ville de Havre and he was going across the Atlantic himself and when he came to the very point where his wife and children had died, he penned that hymn. When peace like a river, which is what Isaiah says, I will give you peace like a river. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. That's the kind of peace that only God gives. It transcends your external circumstances and it transcends even the nervous little incapacities of your psyche. It's the peace of God. That's what we want. Now, let's look secondly as we think about this concept of peace, that the peace of God not only comes from the Holy Spirit, but the peace of God comes from peace with God. Now, here is our circumstance as we're brought into the world. We have a restless soul. And the reason is, fundamentally, we're out of touch with God. And what that does, that leaves us without a purpose in life. And eventually, that leaves us out of sorts with our friends. And that also includes a fear of the future. So our life's in turmoil. That's the way we're brought into this world as sinners out of touch with God, out of touch with our friends, out of touch with life, out of touch with the future. Everything is off. And because of all that, we're even disgusted with ourselves. We basically hate ourselves. And when I look at some of the problems in this world, uh, it often has to do with men who hate themselves. They end up expressing it in hatred toward other people. Sometimes a rageaholic, the real problem is they're disgusted with themselves. And the reason that we react so quickly to someone else's criticism is because we fear they're right. 
And we've been criticizing ourselves for the same thing for years. And now when you say it, you trigger that within me that causes me to lose self-control because there's basically a disgust with self. Now, here's the root of the problem. You can look at this diagram we've drawn here. As we're brought into the world, we have a sinful conscience. And what happens is our conscience condemns us so that we are out of peace with ourselves. We're at war with ourselves. Our own selves hates ourselves. Why is this? Well, because as sinners, we've come under the wrath of God. We're, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, we are children of wrath. We're objects of wrath. We, we are children of darkness. We've sinned and rebelled against Him. And we've provoked, justly provoked, His righteous indignation. We've provoked His wrath. And His wrath, as John says in John 3, 36, I think it is, His wrath abides on us. It rests on us. That's the way we're brought into this world. David says, in sin did my mother conceive me. Forget birth. Go back to conception. So we're conceived into sin. We're conceived as children of wrath. So we're conceived with a guilty conscience. And our conscience is correct. We are guilty. And so we lose our peace because internally there's this turmoil because externally the reality is that the holy God who created the universe is opposed to us. He is right, we are wrong. He is good, we are evil. He has right intentions, we have wrong intentions. And down deep inside we know this and therefore there's no peace. And that's the reason that Isaiah says there is no peace for the wicked. They can try all they want in their physical accomplishments, in the living of their lives, in all the fun and recreation they try to accumulate in this life. And it's hopeless. There is no peace for the wicked because of that. But then you see the solution. And of course, uh, in, in, when we're in this problem, the way we respond to God is with fear and guilt. That's the reason that Adam wanted to hide. Where art thou, Adam? I'm hiding from thee. Why are you thou hiding? Well, I'm covering myself with fig leaves because I'm afraid of what you're going to do to me. I don't trust you anymore. You're holy. I'm, I'm evil. I know it. And I know what I would do if I were in your shoes. And I'm assuming you would do it too. You'd kill me. You'd extinguish me. I'm hiding from you. And people hide from God. And anything that they try to do for God is just because they're trying to assuage their guilt. They're trying to even up the score. They're trying to get his attention. Just like a little child whose father only loves him when he bowls a strike. That's the way we often act toward God. Surely He would only love us if we bowl a strike. If we, if we bowl 300, then maybe He'll like us. Now, what's the solution? Well, the solution is that because of what Jesus Christ has done for us in dying for our sins, He's removed God's wrath. That's the reason that studying justification, as we have this year, and studying atonement, as we have this year, that is vital. That's at the key of your daily experience. Because you screw up every day. You screw up every hour. And if you don't believe it, ask a good friend. Ask your wife. She'll tell you. No, don't ask her. Just take my word for it. You screw up every day. And so you've got to contemplate your freedom from the condemnation of that sin moment by moment. That's how you get free from this trap that you're in and is born into this world as a sinful person. You appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ in your conscience. Then what happens? 
You now have a redeemed conscience. You have a conscience who believes the gospel. Your conscience still believes in right and wrong. In fact, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you've adopted His law. Your conscience is now gradually being purified. Your conscience is actually getting cleaner and higher and more demanding than it was before. So you say, well, now I'm really in trouble. Now I'm just condemning myself all the more because now I have this Christian, theistic, Bible-centered conscience. Well, that's correct. If you are a moralist, if you are a legalist, your life has got to be completely miserable. I mean, I'd rather be a, just an out-and-out pagan than to be a moralist in the church because then I'm stuck with a redeemed conscience in, in terms of judging behavior according to the law of God, but I have no solution for it. That's a miserable life. But our redeemed conscience not only is purified, but it now believes the gospel. And my conscience now looks to the Lord Jesus Christ as the fulfillment of all of the demands of the law of God in my life. And therefore, all those demands are satisfied. And all God's wrath is satisfied by the perfect propitiation that is provided by the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary. So now my conscience does not condemn me anymore. Because in fact, Christ has taken the wrath of God and He doesn't condemn me anymore. So my conscience is in accord with reality. That's the reason that the historicity of the Christian faith is so vital. You can't convince an intelligent conscience not to condemn yourself unless there is a real historical event, a real thing that took place that really removes the wrath of God from off of you. That's the reason that trying to live a Christian life according to some myth of the resurrection or myth of the substitutionary atonement is a myth. It doesn't work. My conscience is too smart for that. My conscience condemns me. I need something real, something substantial, something reliable, something as big as God to take away the condemnation of my own conscience. And that's exactly what the blood of Christ has done. It set me free. Now my inner self, I have... I have peace with myself because I have peace with God. Real peace, objective peace. So I have the subjective experience of peace because I have the objective reality of peace. Look, for example, leave your finger in Galatians 5 if you ever left it there the first time and turn to Romans 5. This is page 1817 in your Bibles. And look with me at... Romans 5, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified, that is, declared righteous, through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There you have it. Since we've been justified through faith. And that's what Paul was teaching in Galatians 2. We're justified through faith in Christ. We're declared righteous because Christ is righteous and He lived in our place and He died in our place. He is our boast. He is our claim. He is our record of righteousness before God. He's our everything, our wisdom, our sanctification, our redemption. He's everything. And because we believe He's our everything and we contribute nothing to it, we just simply trust in Him. He's our everything. Now we have peace with God. And let me tell you something. In your religious experience, to the degree 
that you think that you're contributing something to your justification, to that degree, you will not experience the peace of God. If you'll give all to Christ, let His righteousness be all your righteousness to declare you righteous before God, then you can have the peace of God. But as long as you think you're carrying this load along with Jesus, you're not going to have peace. And there will be some wrath leaking out around the atonement of Christ that's still coming your way. And there will be some unsettledness in your own conscience, really wondering if God really does love you, if you're really going to make it, and if things are really okay, if it really is well with your soul. So that's what the Bible is teaching us. Peace comes from the Spirit of God, and the peace of God comes from peace with God. It all begins with Him. So our experience of tranquility has everything to do with our theology. And that's what the world doesn't understand. You cannot have ultimate tranquility unless you're faking it by or drinking booze. or I was talking to a guy one time who hadn't been in church in about four years. I said to him, Tony, I said, man, we've been really missing you around here. He said, well, shoot. He said, I've got a great life. He said, a tennis game has never been better. Uh, look at this trophy wife I've got. He said, I've got good health. Uh, he's dead now. Uh, I'm sorry, it's true. He's dead. He's dead. So now how much peace is there? He's dead. That was 20 years ago, but it went like that. He's dead. He's gone. He's stupid. He blew it. He convinced himself somehow or thought he was, he was pretending to convince himself that the guy had peace. He had well-being. He had contentment. He had everything he needed. He did not have everything he needed. And when you get to the bar of justice, you're going to find out I'm naked and I don't have what I thought I had. I don't have what I need. Here's what you need. You need the clothing of the righteousness of Jesus Christ to get you through. And when you've got that, gentlemen, you can face anything in this life. Anything. Anything. That's the reason that Paul says do not be anxious about anything. That's the reason Jesus said don't worry about anything. That's the reason that the Apostle Peter said cast all your burdens on Him. Don't carry anything. That's peace. And it only comes from God and it begins with peace with God. Now, thirdly, we obtain God's peace by walking in the Spirit. He says, so I say... Walk in the Spirit or live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. You will not worry. You will not be anxious. You will not lose your peace if you walk in the Spirit. Here's the key to it. First of all, do not be anxious about anything. Realize that if you're worrying about something, <laughs> I don't know if this helps you, it helps me, you're sinning. <laughs> it's real simple. If you're worrying about something, you're sinning. Now, I didn't say if you're concerned about something. The way the Easterns handle worry is just to say things don't matter. That matter doesn't matter. That only spirit matters. Matter does matter. We glorify God by living in this life of matter. And people's pains matter. Your pains matter. But we don't worry about them. We have an answer for them. We contemplate. The Eastern gets their view of tranquility by emptying their brain of everything. 
Mm, mm, just empty it. The Christian deals with the difficulties in life by filling his brain, contemplating the realities we've been talking about, contemplating the gospel, contemplating the being of God, contemplating the love of God. We think about these things. We fill our minds with it. And that's what gives us the equipment to face the real disappointments and struggles and trials and afflictions of life. But do not be anxious about anything, says Paul in Philippians 4, 6. And Jesus says it in Matthew 6. And Peter says it in 1 Peter 5. And Jesus explains it. He says, can you add one hour, one day to your life by worrying? Well, no. Those of you who are physicians would say, you can't add one, but you can't take a few away. <laughs> I mean, if you'll just really worry really good, you know, get those ulcers going, you know, get the juices going, get your heart really beating, you know, faster than it needs to. Just worry a lot and you can take a few days away, but you can't add one through worry. Let me ask you something. Can you fix anything through worry? Does your worry solve problems? Let me ask you something else. When you're worrying, are you really loving people around you aggressively, wholeheartedly? Who are you thinking about when you're worrying? You're thinking about one person, you. That's it, when you're worried. Worry ties you up. Worry keeps you from solving problems. Worry keeps you from being useful to other people. Worry keeps you from worship. Because when you're worrying, who do you think is in charge of your universe? You. You've taken the obligations of the eternal God and you've assumed that they are yours to fulfill and to discharge. You've gotten your theology all screwed up when you're worried. You're not in worship. You're worshiping yourself and hoping that you pass the test. That's, that's a pretty bad picture, but that's what worry does. And that's the reason Jesus said, drop it like a hot potato. It doesn't have anything to do with your peace. It's the contrary of accomplishing peace. Secondly, notice what Paul says in Philippians 4, 6. He said, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Okay, now I get it. I'm not going to take the worry on. I'm going to hand it over to him. That's the reason Peter says, cast all of your anxieties on him. You know my favorite story with Bill the worrier. And one day, Joe, his friend, saw him just whistling and you know, enjoying life. He had a lilt to his step down the sidewalk. And Joe says to Bill, Bill, what's got into you? I mean, you're a, you're a guy who's always kind of melancholy looking down. You look so happy today. And Bill said, well, it's my new psychiatrist. Oh, well, great. Uh, what did the psychiatrist do for you? Well, he says, he told me just to give him all, all my worries. Just, he said, tell me your worries and just give them to me. And I gave them to him. <laughs> I'm free as a bird. And Joe says, well, that's fantastic. How much does your psychiatrist charge? $1,000 an hour, Bill said. And Joe said, how in the world are you going to pay that? He said, I don't know. That's his worry. Uh, I mean, this is the key, gentlemen. You have a Savior. You don't have a psychiatrist. You have a Savior. And he says, cast all your burdens on me. Okay, you mean if I've got cancer, what about my wife? What about my children? What about my grand? Cast them all on him. And you say, well, how, how is this all going to work out? I don't know. He said cast it all on him. He said he'd take care of it. So I assume he's got it. And what I read in the Bible, I think he's capable. From what I read in the Bible, I think he'll do a better job with this than I do. From what I read in the Bible, I think he'll take the sad things in life and he'll actually turn them into being something good in life. I think that's what he'll do. 
That's called faith. Faith in the promise of God. Faith in the person of God. Faith in Jesus Christ. Cast all your burdens on Him. That's what it means to cast your burdens on Him. Watch you try it. <laughs> it does work. Some of us have a really hard time with that. You know why? We're control freaks. And a control freak is going to have some trouble with Jesus because Jesus isn't a freak, but He controls. And He doesn't like competition. <laughs> so cast your burdens on Him. Pray about everything. Lord, I've got this problem. And since I belong to you, I think this is your problem. <laughs> so I'm just going to cast it over here, and you just give me my part of it. You just give me your orders for what I'm supposed to do. But the problem is yours. But I'm gonna, my only problem is to do what I'm supposed to do. Worry is taking control of things you have no control over. Concern is taking responsibility for the things you do have control over and you have responsibility for And your responsibility is not to solve all the problems of your family. Your responsibility is to be a faithful husband and a faithful father. Your responsibility is not to fix every problem in Memphis. Your concern is to be a good citizen and to devote your life to the welfare of your neighbor. That's your problem. Don't worry about the city. Don't worry about the city. Concern yourself with your obedience to the Lord and your sacrifice for His glory. That's what you get your mind on. And pray about everything. Those who worry do not pray. How many times have you been worrying about something for days and days and finally said, I just can't do anything about this. I'm just going to have to go to prayer. (laughs) Well, how do you do? You finally got it. And the Lord in His kindness just made you keep worrying about it until He finally got you to do the thing you should have done in the first place. Don't be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request to God. Then look what happens. God's promise is this. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He'll do it. The God of peace will give you peace. So the peace of God which goes beyond your rationality, which goes beyond your ability to explain this situation, which goes beyond your ability to say even where how this peace came upon you, it will guard. It will. The word guard is garrison, like a military garrison. It will garrison your hearts. You'll have troops, the troops of God, lined up around your heart, guarding it from anxiety. That's the promise of God. So take Him at His word. Now listen, some of us are more natural warriors than others. Some of us are kind of like Alfred E. Newman. <laughs> what me worry? I'm sorry, Mad Magazine, that's 50 years ago. Nobody knows what that is. <laughs> but some of us are like, what me worry? Or, you know, just, or, you know, like kids, you know, whatever. You know, that's not not worrying. That's just being irresponsible. There's a difference between not worrying and not being responsible. Christian concern is to take concern for one thing, the glory of God in your life. And if you're concerned about that, you're not going to worry about it. You're going to enjoy it. The glory of God in your life. Worry is trying to control everything else. So we have to learn to let go. We have to learn not to worry. And some of us are more naturally worrying because we're either more naturally melancholy or we have nervous systems, uh, nervous nervous systems, or uh, we're control freaks. And if you have all three of those, we do have counselors, and I'm serious. You need one. you got all three of those things. You need a counselor. You need someone who can walk you through and help you sort out where all this turmoil in your life is coming from. You need to get a label on it. And just like Jesus demanded 
that the demons label themselves. What's your name? My name is Legion. And then he cast them out. You need a name for all this stuff going on in you. And often you can cast it out when you get its name. I'm not saying you're demon-possessed. I'm just saying that vocabulary, taxonomy, is often the key to uh, good health. All right. We obtain God's peace by walking in the Spirit. And this is how we do it. We get our minds off of carnal power and off of ourselves, and we get our minds on God, which means we're going to enter into prayer, and we look to Him for the peace. We're not trying to produce peace. We're looking to Him for peace. Lord, I'm praying. I'm, I'm trusting You with this. I'm handing it over to You. All I'm asking in return for is Your peace. Give me what You promised. Command what You will, but grant what You command. Give me what You promised, and He will give His peace to you. Fourthly, peace with God leads to a change in your relationship with other people. Peace with God leads to peace with others. And you see this in Ephesians 2, where uh, God uh, talks to us about the peace of God, and he says, look, it works in relationships between Jew and Gentile. This is the reason that in a city like Memphis, race relations are so vital, because wherever the world presents discord, whether it's gender relations or age relations or nationalities or ethnicities or denominations or different political parties, wherever the world presents men in conflict, the gospel goes in and solves it. And one way you can be sure the gospel has gotten a hold of these people, one way you can be sure that God resides with those people is that they're making peace where the world does not make peace. That's the reason this is so vital. It's for God's glory. And You'll see what Paul says here in this text. Let's, let's read it, Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. For he himself, who is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, shalom. And in this one body, one body, to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which He put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Now, what is Paul saying here? He's saying we are united. We are one. We have given to us the gift of unity, of peace with ourselves in Christ. Why? Well, let's look at the five uh, foundations of our unity in Ephesians 2. First of all, we have the same Jesus. He Himself is our peace. He made the two one. He destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He abolished in His flesh. It's Christ. We're all in Him. We're walking in Christ together. Of course we're brothers. Of course we'll be reconciled because we're reconciled to Him. Secondly, we have the same salvation. He abolished in His flesh. He died for us. He died for our brother, no matter what ethnicity, national background. Even if our nations are at war, there are people on both sides who have a greater fundamental unity than the people on one side who belong to one nation. We have a greater unity in Christ because we have the same salvation. We were all saved by the same blood. We were all healed by the same Savior. Thirdly, we have the same message he says, we preached peace in verse 17. So we're proclaiming the same message all around the world. 
people of different backgrounds, different socioeconomic groups, different political persuasions. We're proclaiming the same kingdom of peace. Fourthly, we have the same Father. If you look at the last line, we have access to the same Father. How, does the, how do you feel when your children come to me, come to you and say, you know that son of yours, you know that daughter of yours, <laughs> boy, that grandchild of yours, instead of saying my niece, my daughter, or my brother. And that's exactly what the older brother did when the younger brother came home. That son of yours. We have the same father. What about this? We have the same spirit. We have the same DNA. We have, we have the same God. He gave us new birth. We have the same life. God lives in me. He lives in you. All, look at all the foundations of our unity together. And so we, if we have peace with God, we then must have peace with each other. Peace is demanded of us in the fellowship of believers if we have peace with God. It's, it all goes together. It's one piece, P-I-E-C-E. Now, look at B. We are commanded to be at peace with others. And you get this in Matthew 18 when there's a difference among us. We go straight to one another. Now, ignore those elements at the bottom. Those are misplaced. That, that's on the next page. What I meant to go there is something else. And I don't have time to go into great detail. But let me just talk for a moment about Matthew 18, which is the text about going to your brother if he has anything against you. And if you can't reconcile it between the two of you, you take another brother and go. And if you can't reconcile it with the two of you going to that brother, then you take it to the church. This is foundational. That Matthew 18 text is one of the key sermons that Jesus gave in the book of Matthew. Matthew has five sermons. Sermon on the Mount is the first one. But this is the Sermon on the Church. And as far as Jesus is concerned, it's foundational to the kingdom of peace that we would have the instrumentality of peace with each other so that when we get at odds with each other, which we always do, gentlemen, and a lot of times Christians solve their conflicts with each other by just going to get another church. Just go get yourself another church. Just get away from that person so we just avoid each other. What you'll find in the Bible, you can't do that. Joseph, when he was in Egypt, remember when we were studying Genesis, he was asking them, the the ten brothers came, the ones who sold him into slavery. They came to Egypt because of the famine. And Joseph asked questions about if they had any other brothers. They were wondering, how did he, why is he asking that? Because they didn't know who Joseph was. He was the prime minister. He looked like an Egyptian. He was speaking Egyptian, speaking through a translator to them. And he wanted to know about the little brother. And so they said, well, yeah, we have a little brother. His name is Benjamin. Of course, Joseph knew this because Benjamin was his only other full brother born by Rachel, his mother. So the two boys born of Rachel, and he was concerned about his little brother. And Joseph just wanted to get Benjamin. If you read that text carefully, I think you'll see everything Joseph did was just to get Benjamin. He wasn't going to kill his brothers who sold him into slavery. He was just going to send them back to where they came from, back to Israel. But he's going to keep Benjamin with him. And God didn't let him do that. And that's when Joseph broke and began to weep and sob. And he revealed himself to his brothers. And they were terrified, of course. This one that they sold into slavery is now speaking Egyptian as the prime minister of Egypt and has all the power of the kingdom over them. He could destroy them in a moment. They were terrified. And Joseph reassured them. Joseph thought he was being very gracious because he wasn't killing them. He was just sending them away. God trumped Joseph's idea of grace and gave Joseph God's idea of grace, which was you not only don't destroy them, but you embrace them. 
And Joseph, you'll care for them. And they'll go to the land of Goshen as well as Benjamin. And you'll treat them royally just like you were Benjamin. And he has to teach us that. You don't just tolerate each other. Gentlemen, we die for each other. That's the challenge of peace. And we don't know really, we're not appropriating the peace of God until we appropriate it in human relationships. And so you get the Matthew 18 paradigm that we won't have time to go into today. I wish we did just to walk through how is it that you can reconcile a severe difference between you and a brother in Christ. Let me just say this. You can email me later. It can be done. And furthermore, it must be done. And we must learn in our family how to deal with each other. In your church, wherever you're coming from, you see to it best you have anything to do with it, that your church has a method of getting brothers to resolve their differences with each other. And if you don't have a method, let me tell you something, your differences are not being resolved. I've been in churches where there was no method. And I'm telling you, where there's no method and there's no agreed upon way to resolve differences, they don't get resolved. People just go to other churches, ignore each other, or tolerate each other at the best. Now lastly, the peace of God is something we experience subjectively, but only if we have an objective peace with God. And that peace with God leads to peace with others. But let me tell you something even grander in the biblical definition of shalom. This peace is cosmic. Peace with God leads to peace with the cosmos. The whole universe is to be at peace. This is the reason we have peace. We have peace with God who is not just saying, hey, look, son, don't worry about your disease. Don't worry about your grief and sorrow. Don't worry about your shame and embarrassment because you lost your job because it doesn't matter. He's not saying that at all. He's saying, this matters a lot to me because you're my children, you're royalty, and one day I'm going to bring the job to you. One day I'm going to bring the wealth to you. One day I'm going to bring the health to you. One day I'm going to bring the full satisfaction where your heart is so full of the enjoyments of life that you couldn't possibly appreciate anything more because you're flooded over with the goodness of God. That's what he's doing for you. And it's a matter of knowing where you are on the timeline. And right now, you are just as Christ was in His humiliation when He left heaven and came to earth and took on flesh. You're in your period of humiliation. But there's coming a day of exaltation. And when Peter was advising us to cast all of our anxieties upon Him, he says, because He cares for you. And he said, humble yourselves. In that same text, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, for He will exalt you in due time. So we are princes who have inherited the kingdom and one day it's all coming to us. He's at the right hand of the Father. We'll be with Him at the right hand of the Father. We'll look like Him. We'll own what He owns. We'll have the same pleasure that He has. Gentlemen, we have a destiny that no man can imagine unless he reads the Bible with faith as we do and sees what's laid out for us. Our peace is not some whistling in the dark. Our peace is not some hoping against hope. Our peace is based on a sure and certain assurance that one day Christ, the Prince of Peace, is coming back and He'll give all the elements of peace internally and externally to His brothers and sisters. That's the reason we have peace. It's a gift. And that's the reason that Isaiah says, how beautiful are the feet of those who proclaim peace. How beautiful. When you go out and proclaim peace, because anyone who can see with any imagination at all what God is describing in the Bible, when you're proclaiming peace, when you're 
sharing the gospel with somebody, that gospel means good news. And what is that good news? That our God reigns, and the God who reigns has provided a way to be reconciled to Him so that one day we have His shalom in His kingdom, and everything is ours. Now, peace is also our mission. Peace with the cosmos is our mission. And Jeremiah said to the exiles in Babylon of all places, he said, seek the shalom, seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I've carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. He's saying, you are Jerusalemites. You've been taken into exile, and you're miserable. You're over here in Babylon. Gentlemen, we're in the same, in the same shape. We, says Paul, are citizens of the new Jerusalem. That's our nation. That's our city-state. That's the place to which we belong. That's our real passport. We're from Jerusalem, the new city that's coming down out of heaven one day. That's our city. Right now, we're in exile. And where are we? We're in Babylon. We're in a corrupt and broken city. And I'm not talking about Memphis. I'm talking about this world. And so we're out of sorts. We're out of place. We're away from home. And this letter is written by Jeremiah from Jerusalem to the exiles. It's a, the marvelous model of how we ought to think about peace. So we're in exile. So we don't have what we want. So we're away from home. You seek the shalom of this wicked place to which I've sent you. Babylon of all places. Is there any city in this world that's worse than Babylon? Is Memphis worse than Babylon? No. And whatever city you're in, God sent you there by His providence. And when you're there, you seek the shalom, the peace of that entire city. You say, how can people have peace if they don't have a saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ? You bring them whatever element of peace you can. And if you'll look at the biblical description of shalom, even for a city like Babylon, it includes everything about that city. Look at the diagram. Here in the middle is a person who has soul, has a soul that's at peace. And how does he have that? Well, of course, being reconciled to God. And he immediately is included in the new humanity, the church, this humanity, this social group that's at peace. And then the families are at peace. And then we have our, our children are at peace. They're protected. They're cared for. They're educated. They're nurtured. They have schools that are... That are uh, educating them and bringing peace. We have peaceful neighborhoods through law enforcement and peace officers. We have jobs and poverty relief. We have economic opportunities for people. We have affordable housing, a place to live in shalom. We have medical and psychological care, a politics that are according to the, the, the laws of the land, and racial harmony. And we have, of course, the expression of culture in the arts. All of this makes up shalom in the city. And for Memphis to have peace, for us to take the word of God who says, seek the shalom of Memphis, seek the peace of the place I've taken to you, all this is involved. There is biblical shalom. Best I can describe it is I look at what God means by shalom throughout these 350 references in the Bible. It would mean a place that has all of the elements of shalom. So gentlemen, we go into our city and we're the agents of shalom. The heart of it is the gospel. But it also involves every other component of life, which, of which we can ignore none. Because it all is an expression of God's peace upon a city. We're seeking that for the city. We're seeking its prosperity. And he says, your shalom will come with their shalom. 
So you're not going to have shalom by just getting into a little corner. Let's get us Christians together, have the Christian yellow pages and Christian businesses and Christian schools and Christian this and Christian that. And I'm not opposed to Christian education, by the way. But I am opposed to siloing yourselves as though you can have God's peace without seeking the peace of your neighbor who is not a Christian. That's impossible. You will not have the peace of God until you obey His commandment to seek the peace of everybody around you. So our ministry to this city is not one of fleeing from the problems, but rather fleeing toward the problems and bringing peace where there is lack of peace. That is our task. And it is in fulfilling that task that we find our purpose in life. Gentlemen, that's the reason you're here and not there. When you get there, you're going to say, Pastor, why didn't you tell me to commit suicide and just go on? It's so much pleasure up here. The reason I told you not to commit suicide is because the Lord said not to do that because He wants to bring peace to more people here. You've got a job here, and you don't have it long. It's not going to last that long. You're going to get home real soon. And infinity or eternity makes time just about zero if you do your calculus so that this time is so short it's negligible. But we've got it right now, an opportunity to serve in a broken world in the Babylon to which he's taken us to bring shalom, to express the overarching kingdom of God's peace here and around the world. That's peace. That's life in the Spirit. It starts with peace with God. It issues into peace with ourselves. It goes into peace in relationships. And one day, gentlemen, peace for the cosmos. Let us pray. Father, thank you for the great gift of peace and we pray that we would be men of peace, that our churches would be at peace, our families would be at peace, our city would be at peace, our businesses would be at peace and help us to be the agents of that peace that passes all understanding. And we make our prayer in the name of the Prince of Peace himself, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.